pray together, and uh, and we'll open the word together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are so intimately involved in every part of our lives. Lord, even the most mundane moments, you never leave us or forsake us. You're with us, Lord, when we are sleeping. You're with us when we are washing dishes, driving the kids to school. Whatever it is we do, Lord, you are there. And Lord, I pray that as we today, that you would be pleased to continue to grow us as strong disciples of your son, Jesus Christ, that you would move us, even, even during this time of preaching, move us along the path for your sake, transforming us, making us look more and more like your son. We pray that you would do this work and then that we would go into the world afterwards with glory on our hearts and on our tongues and be spreaders of the good news that you have given. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake, amen. Well, you know, good surgeons and nurses will warn you concerning any pain that you might experience after your surgery is over. They won't shy away from being very candid with you about any post that you can expect. But they will also lay out a pain management plan which might involve painkillers being taken both orally and intravenously, that's a hard 30 in the morning. As Brian Chappell has suggested, we can think of Daniel 11 as a surgeon speaking to us, a surgeon being very candid about pain that we humans can expect as we journey through this fallen world, while also pointing us in his great care for us, pointing us to and to hope. How many of you need help and hope this morning? Amen. Now, the thing about Daniel 11 is that it is a lengthy prophecy given celestial man that we met last Sunday during the preaching time. Here we have, in Daniel 11, we have a prophecy that concerns enormous amounts of historical detail. And the historical detail in this prophecy is ancient historical detail. And I think if, if I was to lay out for you all the ancient historical detail that is packed into the I'm quite sure that I would be the only one left awake for the closing song later on. And so we won't do that. Instead, we will take this chapter this morning in chunks, instead of going verse by verse as we normally do, as is our custom, but we're going to parachute in here and there to notice a few of the details in the individual verses. Verses two through 20 of this 11th chapter of Daniel provide a sweep of 355 years worth of ancient history. The section starts in verse two with a description of the Persian king Xerxes, otherwise known as Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, uh, who if we've read Esther's husband. 
And it ends in verse 20 with a description of a Greek king named Seleucus IV. So 355 years in history in only 19 verses. And every one of those 355 years, it's important to note, were still future to Daniel as this prophecy. The detail that, Daniel, that God gives to Daniel here concerning these, these 355 years, it's absolutely stunning. It's out just exactly what will happen. From the fall of Xerxes of Persia to the rise of Alexander the Great of Greece, then to the ascendancy of the Ptolemy kingdoms, and all the soap opera-like intrigue that will happen in those two kingdoms with various love affairs and marriages and divorces and political maneuvers and battles and murders. And then finally, the prophecy moves around verse 18, it moves to the decline of and the rise of the Romans. Now, in this first section of our passage, I think it's important to draw our attention to two things that are happening here that I am calling blocking and cruising. So first of all, blocking. What we notice throughout the section is that human beings, human beings over this 355 years, prophesied history, human beings have aspirations, they have plans, they have goals, and those aspirations, plans, and goals are repeatedly by someone higher and greater than they are. Their aspirations are blocked by God himself. So let's go through just some blocking that happens in this section. Verse 4 is talking about Alexander the Great of Greece. And the prophecy about Alexander here is, notice, that the kingdom be broken and divided. That his kingdom shall be plucked up. Now put yourself in Alexander's shoes. Certainly Alexander wouldn't want his kingdom divided broken, plucked up. But friends, a sovereign God in the heavens would see to it that it was. For his higher, greater, more wise purposes, God would block the aspirations of Alexander the Great. Well, in verses 6 through 9, divine blocking that happens, but we won't get into the nitty-gritty of the historical details there. I want you to come with me, however, to verse 11, where the king of the south point in history would be a playboy king named Ptolemy IV. And Ptolemy IV would be moved with rage, it says in the rage and would come out and fight against the king of the north. And the king of the north at this point, 
would be Antiochus III. Antiochus III in the north raised a great multitude. Indeed, his army at this point, looking at the historical records, his army at this point consisted of 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 100 elephants. But even, even with all that heavyweight, pardon the pun, military hardware, including the elephants, there at a place called Raphia, Antiochus and his elephants given into Ptolemy IV's hands. So Antiochus's military aspirations to win this thing would be blocked, defeated. Notice, friends, that God planned all these details hundreds of years in advance. Amazing about our God, he knew in advance that all this would happen just exactly as it is prophesied here. This prophecy is being given centuries before major players in these prophesied events were even born. Well, we have more divine blocking of human plans and human aspirations in verse 12, and again in verse 17, and again in verse 17, and then finally also in verses 19 and 20. So in verses 19 and 20, the Seleucid king Antiochus is in some trouble. In verse 18, he's just been defeated in a battle against Rome. And the year being prophesied here is 190. The victor, Rome, had now imposed a massive monetary tribute on the loser, on Antiochus III. And Antiochus having trouble paying it off. And so he resorts to robbing temples and taking his looted treasures to the pawn shop. Antiochus is killed in the process of robbing temples. Verse 19, he shall stumble and fall and not be found. But you see, the thing is that even with dead, Rome still wants its money. So dead Antiochus's successor, a man named Seleucus IV, sends an exactor tribute. That is, he sends his ancient Near Eastern tax agent, a man who would be named Heliodorus. Heliodorus goes to Jerusalem to demand funds temple so that the Greeks could pay Rome what they owed Rome. And then later on, this same tax agent poisoned his king, Seleucus, so that Seleucus was now broken, neither in anger nor in battle, but by poison. And again, friends, notice here in Daniel 11, this incredibly detailed prophecy of everything that we just mentioned given centuries before it ever happened. God would block 
the aspiration of Seleucid kings, defeating them at the hands of the Romans, making sure that heavy tribute was imposed on them, and then finally bringing one of them to his end by poison that was administered by his tax agent. Incredible detail. So we have all this divine blocking going on in this section. Sovereign blocking. Now, you get the distinct feeling as you read through verse 2 through verse 20, you get the distinct feeling that for all the ranting and raving and and hubris and rising and carrying on of the so-called history makers in this passage, that it all comes to precise nothing. Amen. God repeatedly has the say-so in these 350 prophesied years. Over and over and over again. History, my friends, is God's to control and not ours. God gets the aspirations and the plans of people wherever he wills to ensure that his outcome happens for all things. Divine blocking. And then there's the cruising that happens in this same section. What do I mean by cruising? Well, I'm thinking here of a cruise ship. Be on a cruise ship at this time of year. I knew that would get an amen or two. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was A.W. Tozer who first used this illustration, and I'm modifying it here. So say you are on a seven-night cruise uh, to the Bahamas that leaves from New York. The cruise, the cruise ship, will start and finish its prescribed course. It will proceed from the harbor of New York and it will reach its goal in the Bahamas. Meanwhile, you're on board the ship. And for those seven days, you are free to move to the front of the ship if you like, to go to the back of the ship if you want to, or to the... You're also free to disembark at the various ports according to your fancy. So you have two elements going on there. Your freedom to move around once you're on board the ship, but also set course from New York to the Bahamas, a determined course. But it's combined with your personal freedom while you're on board. Well, friends, these same two elements are found in our section of Daniel. People are free to do as they please while God sovereignly steers the ship. While he moves all in the precise way and in the precise direction that he wills. Divine sovereignty and human freedom all at once. And you and I struggle with that, don't we? How can God 
be completely sovereign, controlling all things, while we as human beings remain free and remain responsible. The two things seem to be completely contradictory. But what we need to see is that the scripture writers, geniuses who are inspired by God, as they write, they simply lay out both of these things side by side, and they do this quite regularly all over the place. The scripture writers don't see other about the contradiction that you and I might feel. So for example, we've noticed already all those divine orchestrations, all that divine blocking that throughout uh, this section. God sovereignly ensures that his set course for human history proceeds just exactly and precisely how he desires. Notice, friends, very carefully in the same passage, on the same cruise ship, so to speak, that human beings have genuine freedom. In verse 3, Alexander the Great is prophesied. It says of Alexander that he will, what? Do as he wills. Doesn't that sound a lot like human freedom? do as he wills. Likewise, down in verse 16, as the Seleucid king Antiochus III is being discussed, it says that he also shall do as he wills. A very clear statement of human freedom. So again, what we should notice throughout this entire section is both divine sovereignty Limiting human beings and blocking human beings and turning human history according to his plan. But also we have these little notices that pop up that we can't deny concerning human freedom. From God's perspective, how many of us have thoughts like God has? Not one of us. From God's perspective, given here in Daniel 11, these two things even though for us it may be very hard, if not impossible, to figure. But let's turn our focus now to the next major section of Daniel, verse 21 through verse 35. So where the last section, verse 2 through 20, covered 355 years, it's a long time, of prophesied events, this second section, covers only 12 or 13 years. So now beginning at verse 21, the pace we need to notice, the pace slows down. Considerably it slows down. And the focus of this second section is put on one individual who will rule for those 12 or 13 years. And the individual is Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus We've already met Antiochus Epiphanes, if you remember, in this study when we were back in Daniel chapter 8. Remember him? He's that particular Seleucid king who's infamous 
for his cruelty toward God's people and for his blasphemy toward God. Antiochus that savage one who pronounced the death penalty on Jewish people if they were to circumcise their male infants. He also forbade sacrifice. That sacrifice included offerings to the Greek god Zeus. He also forbade Sabbath practice and the owning of a Torah scroll, both on penalty of death. And he also wanted to be worshipped as God. Antiochus is the contemptible person mentioned here in verse 21. Now, the thing about Antiochus IV is that he was far less a mover and shaker on the big stage of world history than a person like Alexander the Great was. Far less. But what we notice in this chapter is that Alexander the Great gets only two verses worth of description in verses three and four, while this less important but truly awful king, Antiochus Epiphanes, gets a full 15 verses. Why? Well, because it was Antiochus Epiphanes and not Alexander the Great who was particularly vile toward God's people. And God, as he gives this prophecy to Daniel, is far more interested, friends, in relaying what will happen to people at the hands of this madman Antiochus. He's far more interested in relaying what will happen to his people than he is with the political and the military conquests that will by Alexander as great as they were. God cares more about what his people will experience than he does about the big snazzy accomplishments of Alexander. Now notice down at verse 30, that just as Antiochus Epiphanes, he's now preparing to invade Egypt. And the year is 168 BC. To invade Egypt and ships of Katim would arrive. And on those ships of Katim, or we could say, on those ships from Cyprus, there would be Roman delegates, and these Roman delegates would strike fear into Antiochus Epiphanes. The story goes that in 168 BC, the Roman consul who'd arrived on one of those ships, this picture, this Roman consul comes, and he draws a circle on the ground, a circle that was drawn around Antiochus as they're together in the desert. And the consul said to Antiochus, decide right here and right now by stepping out of this circle which way you will go. Go forward toward Egypt. Then Rome, with all of its vast resources, will become your instant and very formidable enemy. Backward, Antiochus, then well and good. What did Antiochus decide? He went backward. 
which for him was a very serious humiliation. What do madmen like Antiochus do when they are seriously humiliated? They find a scapegoat on whom they can vent their anger, which is exactly what Antiochus did. Verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. In his humiliation, Antiochus Epiphanes went to Jerusalem profaning and desecrating the temple, ending the daily, daily sacrifice there and offering up a pig on the altar. But again, my friends, what we really need to see here is this, that while madman Antiochus Epiphanes would be governed, hallelujah, and would be limited by God. What we notice in this is that three times, three times there is mention of a, of a divinely set time limit on things. A time limit that no human being can alter. Or Antiochus shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Again, prophesied hundreds of years before it happened. God's time. Calendar that God sets. Verse 27, Antiochus would enter into a slime ball allegiance with Ptolemy VI, and these guys would sit at the same table, but lies back and forth to one another. But their evil coalition, says the scripture, would be to no avail for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. The time appointed by who? By God. Verse 29, at the time appointed, Antiochus would move south. Davis summarizes all these time limit notices here by saying this, quote, Antiochus will not be as footloose and fancy free as he may seem. For determines even the terms of tyrannies. God determines even the terms of tyrannies and they are tethered to the dates on God's. He says further, Antiochus himself will not likely have a clue, but he will be functioning within the confines of God's appointed time. And then Davis says this, even the insane intensity of history is under the control of God. We have to believe that. And we have to believe that deep in our bones, that even the insane intensity of history is under the control. As we see so much fragmentation and so much division and so much hatred and so much war in our world in 2024, we must believe on the authority of scripture that 
Even the insane intensity of history is under the control of God. My friends, God remains on his throne. Amen? Judging him from his throne, even this satanic ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, was bound, inescapably he was bound, to God's calendar and not to his own. To God's determinations and not to his own. And friends, this is good news. Yes, it is good news. Well, we turn finally now to the last of Daniel 11, which is verse 36 through verse 45. Now, I'm going to borrow an illustration given by Brian Chappell here, because I think it's a great illustration. A common technique in photography is subject in the foreground in focus, the one up front in the picture, while the background content is blurred or kind of out of focus. Well, in verses 36 through 45, these verses start with Antiochus Epiphanes still in focus, but a blur effect soon happens upon him, and another figure who's like him, but even worse, begins to come into focus. And we think this is the, the case here because many of the descriptions don't seem to fit with what we know about Antiochus Epiphanes. They seem to go beyond him to a greater, even more sinister figure. The figure who comes into focus in this passage is none other than the Antichrist. The man of lawlessness who is still to come, who is described in 2 Thessalonians 2. It's like Antiochus Epiphanes, who's just been described in verses 21 through 35. It's almost like he serves as a prototype, as a sort of following, a scale model, if we want, of the Antichrist figure who is far more egregious and who is yet to come. The profane and the persecution of God's people. It was performed by Antiochus Epiphanes about 200 years before the arrival of Jesus Christ on this earth. This will take on portions in the Antichrist. And just to highlight some of the traits or the characteristics of the Antichrist who is yet to come, look with me at verse 36. Himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. Now, does that not sound eerily similar to the Apostle Paul's description of the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4? Paul says there, lawlessness, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. These two descriptions, 
One from the Old Testament in Daniel 11, the other from the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians 2. These are both describing the same figure. The man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, who is yet to come. The second sentence of verse 37 and the first sentence of verse 38 in our chapter also the Antichrist who is yet to come. It says this, He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God fortresses instead of these. Now, isn't that a peculiar phrase here in verse 38? He shall honor the God of fortresses. It seems to indicate Antichrist will have, listen, he will have an almost religious passion for the taking of fortresses. In other words, in more simple language, the Antichrist will love his war. War and all the destruction and the death that is caused by war will be like an object of worship for the even as he exalts himself above all gods. Now, many of you who are my age or older will remember a actor named Mel, in English, Mel Blanc. Mel Blanc. Mel had been the voice of several beloved char cartoon characters, like Bugs Bunny, one of my favorites, Barney Rubble, and Porky Pig. And one of Porky Pig's famous sayings was, ebidi, ebidi, that's all, folks. Right? That's the only time from this pulpit you'll get a Porky Pig <laughs> imitation. Martin, don't record that and send it to me later. <laughs> That's all, folks. It would come right at the end when the card up. And indeed, that saying, that's all, folks, is the brief three-word epitaph that's written on Mel Blanc's tombstone in a cemetery in Los Angeles. Well, as our passage wraps up, friends, we get a very brief, that's all folks, sort of epitaph. Very unceremonious, terse, and abrupt epitaph. But here, it's not for Mel Blanc, it's for the Antichrist. Notice his epitaph that is written in verse 45. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now, in the original Hebrew, it's even short. It's only six words in Hebrew. Dale Davis calls it an epitaph that is so terse, so brief, and so abrupt that it is dismissive. Get this, my friends, don't miss this. For, for, for all his scary bravado, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is disposed of here. He is dismissed away in only six Hebrew words. And of course, running parallel with this verse, 
here at the end of Daniel 11, we go back again to 2 Thessalonians 2. Only four verses after that description of the man of lawlessness proclaiming himself to be God, only four verses later, we get these very terse words in 2 Thessalonians 2. Lord Jesus will what? Kill him. Amen and hallelujah. Kill the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. With the breath of his mouth. Bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. My friends, Jesus will simply blow away the Antichrist. And that will be that. So in Daniel 11, the Antichrist gets his terse little dismissive epitaph. And in 2 Thessalonians, Jesus just simply blows him off the scene as if to challenge us. What are you so worried about? The Antichrist is just a two-bit evil actor in God's play. And God Almighty will dispose of him so effortlessly and so quickly that if you blink, you'll miss it. My friends, this whole chapter of Daniel is a sustained, tremendous encouragement to us, to the people of God, to the blood-bought saints of Jesus Christ, an encouragement that the Sovereign of Heaven has how much power? All power. And that he knows and he steers the whole of the whole story. Our good and loving God knows every detail of everything that is future to us. And his goal for all things at the second coming of his son reached, amen, will be reached without fail. He cares for us so much, listen, so much that he tells us in advance what to expect. Like a surgeon, patient of expected pain. The surgeon might say, well, after your surgery, the pain is definitely going to be there, but be of good cheer because it can be managed with Tylenol until it's totally gone in three or four days. The Son of God, crucified, risen, and coming again, says to us, world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, 34. We will indeed have tribulation in this life. Some of us are experiencing it at this very minute. So, thanks Jesus for being so upfront and candid with us about this. And the Apostle Paul lists many forms, many forms that the tribulation can take in Romans 8. He lists distress, persecution, famine, danger, and sword, but he also gives us that blessed assurance from heaven itself 
that we can be absolutely sure that nothing, including all those things, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. His love, friends, I hope you know it today, remains rock solid and as strong as it ever has been in the midst of your heartache, in the midst of your challenges, in the midst of your distress. Cheer. We know where everything is headed. Even as we see nations rise and fall, even as we see rulers threaten and armies battle, we see people divided and violence on the rise, we know that it's all headed unstoppably to God's goal, which is expressed so magnificently, I have to read it to you, Revelation chapter 11. So where are things all headed? To this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. I hear Handel's music coming in now. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and to reign. The nations raged. Are the nations raging? The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Hallelujah, amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, what a blessing it is that you have given us as the great physician, the surgeon's report of all history. Here's where things are headed, here's what to expect, but be of good cheer for our world. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that as your people we have this revelation, that tomorrow on our jobs and our homes, wherever we are, we can have the peace that you give, knowing that you're in control. We praise you and thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.